What's up, everybody? This week's episode of Skirmish Supremacy is brought to you by absolutely nobody. They're all up at Adepticon having fun, and they left me down here in Atlanta. However, if you do get a chance to come by Gigabytes Cafe, I will be up there every other Friday and Saturday mornings uh, running different events for different games. So if you're in the area, come by, say hi, and uh, hang out. And enjoy the episode. Alright folks, we're back with another episode of Skirmish Supremacy, and today Nick and I are joined by Charles Ryan from Monty Cook Games. They actually have a couple new games uh, that just came, well, sorry, they have one game that just came out called No Thank You Evil, which is directed towards the younger role-playing crowd, and they have a very successful Kickstarter for, I'll try to contain my fanboy on this, the Cypher System by Monty Cook Games, where they actually have not one, but three different campaign settings that will be launching at the same time in this Kickstarter. Charles, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So I guess first, yeah, let's touch upon uh, No Thank You Evil. I recently just had it uh, come into the warehouse over at PSI. I know a little bit of insider info there for you folks listening. However, I did not get a chance to look at it. So unfortunately, I don't know too much about it. All I know is that it is designed for a younger gaming group so it's something that gamer parents can play with their kids and kind of get them weaned into role-playing or other games in the future but that's about all i know about it well actually you know you hit the the nail on the head when you said that the gamer families can do this because it's actually um it's actually designed to be played across a range of of sort of skill levels if you will um characters can be designed with different complexity so you can sit down and with uh with kids all the way down to four or five and give them a really simple character. And, uh, you know, if, in a family, you might have, you know, one kid that's five and another kid that's seven and another kid that's nine. And all of those can place different characters uh, or characters with built according to different levels of sophistication. Uh, and they can all enjoy it. Uh, the little kid doesn't get frustrated. The bigger kid has something to do. And that way the whole family plays together. And so, uh, yeah, it is a role-playing game. We It's a boxed game. Um, we didn't put the word role playing on the outside. We actually call it a creative, a game of creative storytelling, uh, or a game of storytelling and adventure for creative kids and their families. Um, not so we don't scare the muggles, but I think any, any gamer would totally recognize it as an RPG just by looking at the outside of the box. And, uh, you know, it's, it's based on a stripped down version uh, of the cipher system. So if you played the cipher system, you would recognize the mechanics. Um, but it's played with a, with a D6. Um, it's all really high quality components, um, nice uh, kid sized components, um, cards that have the, you know, the creatures on them and companions and even character cards. So if the character, the kid doesn't want to make a character uh, on a character sheet, they can use a card and just use the stats off of there. Um, uh, it's a game where we've tried to remove all of the barriers that might stop younger kids from enjoying adventure games. So um, the components were built, the, 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 the uh, tokens uh, punch out with very little burr. So uh, a kid on the autistic autism scale will be less bothered by those kinds of details that tend to bother them. Um, all the components are um, uh, colorblindness compatible. 
So they've got differences in, 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 in the colors were chosen. So that won't be a problem. You know, an adult gamer probably by the time they're 30 years old has defense mechanisms for living in a world that even if they're colorblind, they still know how to read stuff because they deal, do it all the time. But, you know, for a kid, it might slow them down a little bit. Um, they can use tokens to control their pool so they don't have to do math on the paper. If writing is an issue, that's, you know, again, they can use the cards and the tokens. So all of these things that, that could in any way stand in the way of a kid enjoying an adventure game, we've taken that all out of the way. And then we brought in loads and loads of fun. It's very whimsical. It's got a really cool setting, a, a place called Storia, and lots of adventure hooks and just all the kinds of things that kids love. Um, uh, and, you know, kids of, of a variety of ages. Where can I get this? Well, uh, starting today, hopefully just about everywhere. It's, uh, it's Street Date was today. So uh, it should be showing up on game store shelves all over the place. But, of course, you can always get it from com. Awesome. So I've got a 10-year-old, and um, I was listening to uh, Drunks and Dragons when I was picking them up from school one day. Mm -hmm. And they said something about playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was was early into the podcast. And so my son said, you know, hey, can I play Dungeons and Dragons? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I mean... You know, he, he mm-hmm. started asking me something about it. My my heart started warming. My nerd is, you know, growing up. And then <laughs> uh, and then I'm like, so what would you want to play if you played Dungeons and Dragons? Well, a second goes by and he's like, well, a dragon. I'm like, well, why do you want to play a dragon? He's like, who would want to be a dungeon? <laughs> His logic is not flawed. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. No, nope. that makes perfect sense. Awesome. It, it, yeah, it, you know, kids have a different sort of logic than than grownups. You know, and and so uh, a game. You know, my kids. I have kids that are and they're ten and twelve. So and they've been around the block with D and D, and they're very comfortable with the modern, you know, the full on fantasy tropes and all that kind of stuff. But you know, when you're a little bit younger five or seven or eight or even, you know, even eight, up to 10 and you're not steeped in that stuff. I mean, kids imagination goes all over the place. So no, thank you. Evil is a fantasy game, but it's a fantasy game with race cars and astronauts and, you know, the Loch Ness monster and, you know, just all kinds of things that, that swim around in kids' heads and in their imaginations. So you, you kind of took it and, uh, expanded upon a lot of the, the typical fantasy tropes that most kids know. So I take it there's probably something in there like a monster under the bed and things of that nature. Yeah, you know, actually, so Storia is this is the setting of the game, but the kid plays the, the 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 players are kids from our world, and they can enter Storia. And Storia has sort of these different zones, and so if you go into the closet, that takes you into sort of classic uh, uh, fairy tale type stuff. If you go behind the bookshelves, it's things that are based on more literary things. You go out the window and it's, it's, uh, astronauts and spaceships and fast cars and, and racing and, and adventure stuff. And if you go under the bed, that's the creepy realm where the, where you run, you run into, uh, sort of spookier adventures. Oh, wow. And it sort of brings all that stuff in. Cool. So you guys really put some thought into it based upon the typical tropes that we see, which is really, really good. Um, you're, you're not going out of your way to try to make like this 100% unique world that you know uh, most parents would look at and go i don't know what this is exactly but we also didn't try to say we've made a fa- you know a fantasy tabletop game like D, but for kids you know it's it's 
really, really focused around the way kids use their imagination for fun stuff. That's really, really cool. I, I definitely got to check one of those out and read it now that uh, I got a little bit more free time at work. But uh, yeah, I, I knew that uh, there was some buzz and excitement that was generating around it. But like I said, unfortunately, at this point, I didn't have a chance to look at it. So how long do the games normally play? Like if you were to sit down, let, let's say out of the box, no character creation, just kids using the cards. How long does it normally mm-hmm. take to play like a session, a typical session of No Thank You Evil? Yeah, I would say uh, 30 to 60 minutes are typical for like the adventures that we present. Um, like every role-playing game, it's completely open-ended and you can make the adventures as 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 broad as you like them to be. You can connect them into games. Characters can advance, do all of these things you can do with any RPG. Um, but we want to start with a baseline where you, you can feel confident that, A, you can carve out that time with your kid. Um, kids have pretty busy lives, right? And so it, sometimes it's hard to say you're going to say we're going to game for six hours. Um, but also, you know, also that it's going to be, you know, kids going to be comfortable with. So, so you can play this game in 30 minutes, maybe, maybe an hour. Um, or you can, you know, like any other RPG, you can extend it out much further than that. Cool. So the, the recommended playtime is really whatever you want to make it, but standard standard out of the box is 60 minutes. Yeah, that's what I would say, 30, 30 to 60 minutes. Cool. So walk us through character creation. How, how does that normally work in No Thank You Evil? Do they have, like, character classes or character archetypes? That, well, that, that's, a great, that's a great question because... Um, uh, if you're familiar with the cipher system, uh, which you know was founded with Numenera, and then we did the Strange, and now we have the cipher system rulebook as a as a you know a, a generic rule set. Um, all, in all of these, throughout the cipher system, you build a character by saying, "I am a I am a blank blank who blanks." So I am a, a you know a clever nano who bears a halo of fire, or what have you. And, and these three uh, terms describe your character, but they are all uh, there are also mechanical elements that that build your character, and they they contribute all of your character's you know abilities and pools and so on um, as as you build it. So what No Thank You Evil does is it actually lets you layer on those things. So a kid can say, "I am an astronaut," or "I am a creature," or "I am a uh, a princess." Whatever it is, you know, there's several of these uh, we we call types, um, but. I mean, the closest equivalent is to a class in most games. Um, and that's that's what your four-year-old is going to play. You know, I am a pony. Boom, you're done. Um, but what then you can then do is add on the the descriptor. So you can say, I am a uh, super fast astronaut. I am a, um, uh, a, a clever kid or whatever. And then lastly, you can put on, you know, this the descriptor, which is, or excuse me, the focus, which is, uh, you know, uh, who likes ice cream um, or who, you know, uh, I can't think of any other off the top of my head, but, you know, we have a, a series of them. And so that gives you three levels of, of complexity right there with your characters. Uh, just just a thing or a thing with a, a, a um, an adjective or a thing with an adjective and then that, that verb at the end. And all of those layer on a little bit more to the character. Um, but they all work together in the same game. The other element I should mention is that characters, the characters all have um, companions. So every character has a companion. So you might have a flying octopus or a clumsy ghost or, you know, a fire breathing miniature dragon or any, any number of things can be your companion. And that also gives you, brings another element to your character because your companion can do things as well. 
Um, yeah. Awesome. So it uses the cipher system. It just doesn't go as in depth as far as the the mechanics behind it. Like it still it still uses the same. I'm the blank blank who blanks, but the, the mechanics aren't as complex as they are in the cipher system. Not that the cipher system is complex. It's just you know, like any other RPG, there's a certain right. amount of crunch. Yeah. Right. That, that's exactly right. So. Uh, if you're familiar with the cipher system and I'm kind of getting down to the weeds here a little bit, um, but it's the same sort of thing. Also the, the GM is, or the guide as we call them in, in no thank you evil is going to, uh, establish a task difficulty, um, in no thank you evil. It's between one and eight. And then the player is going to roll a six sided die and see if they can make that number, uh, make or beat that number. Um, and so the things you can do to, uh, to, to make it easier on yourselves is you can spend points out of your pool. So you spend, if this is a, I'm going to run a race against a rabbit and I'm going to try, I'm, I'm going to um, do what we call try harder. So I spend a point out of my speed pool. Um, and then instead of it being a five to beat that rabbit, now I only need a four and I roll that on a D six. Um, and another cool thing is that just like in the regular sites, the grown up cipher system, if you will, well, there are three pools that are your own stats. So um, um, we call them slightly different versions, but they all basically amounts to smart, speed, and, and toughness. Um, and then there's a fourth stat in No Thank You Evil, which is awesome. And your awesome pool only spend to help other people. So it's sort of like this little hook in there to, uh, to uh, um, uh, encourage the players to engage with one another and each other's actions. Awesome. So you, you have a built-in mechanic that really allows them to focus on the fact that this is a problem solving and teamwork game. Exactly. Exactly. Really cool. Really cool. I'm sure we've all had those situations where we've been in different RPG tropes where there's always that one guy that's a total a-hole trying to stab everybody in the back, take all the loot, run off and do his own thing and leave you all just for dead in a dungeon somewhere. <laughs> well, hopefully that's not, uh, not what's going to happen. No, no thank you. Really hope not. Otherwise, uh, Kids are going to grow up kind of messed up with that one. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So what is the, the price point on No Thank You Evil? It's uh, 40 bucks, thirty nine ninety nine, And like I said, it's a boxed set, so it's got a, a rule book in it. It's got everything you need to play. It's got an adventure book. Uh, it has character cards, uh, companion cards, uh, com uh, creature cards and cipher cards. And the ciphers are little, like little one, one shot special abilities that your companion has. So your companion has like a secret ability that only you and the companion know about, and they can play that card to use it. And then later on, if you get the opportunity, you feed your companion a treat and they get to draw a new cipher card. Um, it's got dice and it's got tokens for tracking all of the, the, um, the uh, various pools and for coins that your characters can gain and then that to buy equipment and um, uh, treats for their for their for their companions and whatnot. I really I really dig that. So and that just launched today. That's correct. Yeah, just hit stores today. So just to give you a heads up, I don't work sales. So as far as that goes, nobody ever tells me the actual street date. I just track when it comes into the building. So. <laughs> right. And and to be clear, we're, t we're we're today is Wednesday, so I don't I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but uh, today is Wednesday, the thirtieth okay, of March. Well, they'll probably be listening to it by tomorrow, so it'll already be available by the time they hear it. Cool. Yes, awesome. absolutely. Unless the stores are all sold out. Well, that's you know first world problems. That's a that's a great problem to have. 
That's right. So go bug your local yes. game go. store. No, thank you, yes. evil. If you've got kids and you're a gamer, you need to pick it up. Awesome. I have a lot of fun. Um, and, the, you know, the theme of the, of the game skews a little bit more toward the younger kids, toward five, six, seven, eight, maybe. Um, however, this was an extensively playtest game. And like I said, I've got kids that are a bit older than that. And we have never – my daughter, Olivia, who was 11 last year, uh, was demoing it at Gen Con. Um, and and we've, we've never had a case where a 10 or 11 or a 12 or 13-year-old played it and said, man, this game is stupid, right? It's, it's clearly aimed for younger kids. But if you've got kids across an age range, everyone's going to have fun because it's got a lot of neat stuff in it. It's kind of like a you know, like a Warner Brothers cartoon, right? You know, it's it was made for people that are younger, but there's something there for everybody. Awesome, cool. So that's no thank you, evil. Now let's uh, get started talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to lie; it is my favorite RPG system out there on the market right now. The oh, cipher nice. system. Nice. Oh, yay! I want the dramatic pause. I was hoping somebody was going to go woohoo. So thank you, Nick, for filling in on that. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to pretend here that I'm a little bit of a dummy. Charles, why don't you talk us through the cipher system and what makes it unique compared to other RPG systems that are out there right now? Sure. Um, and I apologize if there's a little background noise. I have the dog here in the office with me, and she's just decided that she's going to complain and whine about being here. Um, so yeah, the cypher system is the game engine that drove, uh, that drives Numenera, which was our premier game, uh, about, uh, I guess it came out in 2013. So coming up on three years now. Um, and then it later went on to, to be the core engine behind the strange as well. And the strange is kind of a, a multi-genre game in the sense that the setting is one where players can travel to alternate realities and whatnot. So when we built it for the strange, uh, you know, Monty and Bruce worked on, on it for, for that game setting. They needed to make it work for far more things than it was working for, for Numenera and, and discovered very quickly that it, it did quite, quite well. Uh, you know, what magic, high tech, science fiction, horror, uh, you know, superhero level stuff, all that sort of things. It just, it, it, the game was very, very easy to adapt. So last year we came out with the Cypher System rulebook, which was just that, taking that core game engine and making it uh, uh, applicable to any genre that you wanted to, to run it in. So um, it was kind of, I don't know, we didn't, we didn't have this big strategy for the Cypher System rulebook. In fact, it's kind of funny that originally it was going to be like a 160-page, almost like a supplement-sized book where we just took the rules out of these games and just presented it. And the more we worked on it, the more we realized that there was cool stuff you could do with all of these different genres. And Monty kept saying, you know, he kept coming back and saying, well, it's going to be a 192 page book. Oh, it's going to be a page book. Oh, you know, and at some point, I don't know why I'm trying to cut material out of this book just to make it be something that, you know, we charge less for. Um, let's just make it a full sized core book because, because it could really benefit from that. And so that's in the end, we, it's a 416 page full on giant core book, just like the size of our other ones. And it came out last summer. But again, because we'd kind of developed our way into it, we'd kind of, kind of fallen into this into this plan we hadn't really thought that it would be a supported line um and so that's what the kickstarter we're doing currently is is to bring uh to bring other you know settings and more rules and things and make it a, a full online now as for the game itself we've already talked about how characters are built um and the task resolution you know is one where a gm sets a, a 
a, um, a task difficulty and the players kind of then have the, the ability to use their skills and other assets to bring that difficulty down. Um, but really, on a conceptual basis, what makes it unique aren't those specifics. It's really how the game is designed to be very, very narrative, but still have a really good rule structure, rules that are not going to get in the way and are never going to slow down play, um, but are going to still provide plenty of structure to build the game on, and, and they're not going to feel like it's just uh, just freeform. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's I, I, is, that, is that it in a nutshell, or, or what else can I tell you? Better than I could have. I mean, well, I certainly hope so at this point. I mean, you've been working on it for how long? But... <laughs> One of the other things that I really liked about it that I thought was one of the, the coolest aspects the moment that I got a copy of the Numenera book is the fact that at the end of the day, your GM never has to touch a dice. He pretty much just has to come to the table, sit down with a notebook with – really, it, he could just jot some stuff down, you know, as long as it fits within his campaign half hour prior to actually playing the game. And he can make a full on adventure. So the the G, the GM himself is not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I come to the table with ideas. I spend all my prep time on ideas, and and none of that prep time on building out huge stat blocks right, or that's things like that. One of the things that really scares people off from being a GM and many other games out there is the fact that. Uh, I mean, if you if you look at it from like a typical you know uh, classic D and D standpoint. In order for you to come up with a, a, a good adventure for D and D, you know, so let, let's let's talk full package. We're talking good story, good NPCs, good plot hooks, and then designing the mechanics behind every single thing that they encounter. You're looking at putting hours upon hours of work into what's essentially one session out of what could be a campaign. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the great thing about the cipher system, so I'll, be, I'll address, first of all, what you just said about the, the GM never picking up the, di- the dice. Um, that is true. The players roll all the dice. But even even better, all the onus is on the players to f- sort of figure out how they're going to deal with things from a mechanical as well as narrative standpoint. So I say, you know, there's, you know, the, the, the enemy fortress is on the top of the cliff. And the players say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to climb the cliff. Now, as a GM, I, all I need to do is say how hard that cliff is. That cliff is a bomb, right? So that's a task difficulty. Now I'm done. Now it's on to the players to say, well, you know, I'm trained in gymnastics. Does that help me climb better? Um, I've got some rope and pitons. Does that help me? You know, the, the players will go through the resources just like a real person would, right? What can I use to solve this problem? The players will, will look at the resources that they have as their characters' abilities, skills, and so on none of which are tagged to some specific thing that says, you know, this is a plus three or whatever. They're all just assets that the players bring to bear and maybe can use them to lower that task difficulty a couple steps. So they, they, I say, I say it's a five or maybe I don't even tell them. Maybe it's just in my head. Um, it's a five. They bring to bear, you know, the two people are going to work together and they're skilled. So they're going to help each other. That's going to knock it down one level. And they've, uh, one of them is trained in, in climbing. So that's uh, knocks it down another level. Now it's task difficulty three. Uh, and you just need to roll three times that number, and the player rolls that. And that's true about everything. And then, you know, a creature, this is a, another great thing. A creature, I can basically say, if I want to, if I'm winging it, I can say this is a, a level four creature. And right there, every task difficulty is a four. It attacks you, you defend with a four. You attack it, you attack against a four. You 
uh, want to negotiate with it, you want to sneak past it, you want to trick it, anything you want to do, right off the bat, it's a four. Now, I can build out a stat block or I can use a stat block from, from one of our books and it may have all kinds of things. It says, well, this creature has the ability to squirt acid and it does that with a uh, as though it was a level five or this creature is especially clever and it takes a, it's a level seven for the purpose of, of, of tricking it. And all these other things you can say that, um, that, can, that can make it more sophisticated. But at the end of the day, if I just have to throw a, a, a creature at my, at my players, I can do it with, with, with nothing other than one number. That's, that to me, when I saw that initially, when I was reading through the book, coming from a very crunch-based RPG background, kind of blew my mind. Like, I, I was just like, I, at first, when I saw it, the first time I read it, I, I was very much like, there's no way this will work. Like, it doesn't it doesn't make for anything unique. And then I actually played it, and, uh, you know, first time playing it, I, I didn't GM it right off the bat. And then uh, the the first time we ran into some encounters, I was like, oh, now it, it, it really started to make sense. And it really allowed the GM at that point to just say, what you know the what was happening during the encounter it wasn't just like this dude in full plate armor walks up to you and hits you with his sword you know and roll off and do all this other stuff like they could actually sit back and say this is how the creature reacts this is it they added that narrative element back into it other than feeling like you know playing an old japanese rpg like final fantasy 7 where everything's just kind of standing there and slinging like attacks at one another until one of them goes down Right, right, yeah. And as as a as a GM, like I say, I, I run it myself, um, and I can put all of my prep time into thinking about how it's going to be interesting, unique, and clever. And then, even if I do want to build out a creature for for an encounter that has all kinds of special abilities, you know, again, I start with a number, and then I just start layering on a few details, and it's a five minute process. And I'm not spending a lot of time on stop, stat blocks. Instead, I'm thinking about why is that creature cool? What's going to happen in this? in this encounter that's neat what you know what other thing can i do to make it memorable or different yeah so one of the other unique things and i know we haven't really talked about it yet and i i didn't want to to our listeners you just have to go out and check out the games like there, there's so much that i mean we could sit here and do a five-hour podcast on just the stuff behind the cypher system and how unique it can be but uh, i don't want to touch too much on the mechanics you could always read about that yourselves however there's one unique thing that i really liked was called GM Intrusions. Yeah, and that was, I was going to mention that next, but yes. Yeah, okay, so I was, <laughs> was going to see if you are going to say more about it, but I, sure, I'll, I'll go on. GM Intrusion is essentially a license for the GM to make something interesting happen. And the way it works, and this is not, you know, this is not the only game in the world that has mechanics like this, but it works really well in this, in, in the cipher system. The way it works is, um, the game uses, uh, XP and XP are measured in units of one, not by the thousands. And you don't get them for killing things. You get them for discovery and for meeting the objectives of your adventure and, and so on. So you can't kind of just sort of go around and farm XP, but, um, uh, uh, you use them to advance your character, and you can also use them for rerolls and for other purposes. But so what happens is, if as a as a GM, I can just turn the tables on you narratively for the hell of it. I can say, yeah, you're fighting in this room, and suddenly the floor collapses, and you and the enemy fall to the ground, or, or you know, fall through to the next level down. And I can what lets me do that is that when I say that, I then have to give you two XP, one of which you pass to somebody else in the party. You can then say, if you want to, 
um, you know what? I, I don't want that to happen. I'm going to spend an XP that I already have and reject that. I don't get the, the, the two XP that you're offering. But, and so the player has some narrative control that's really important to avoid that happening. Um, although to be honest, I have very little experience with players rejecting jam intrusions because almost universally they make the game more fun because they throw in some, just like in a movie, you know, you, you, you're all, you're fighting in front of the, 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 the airplane and the airplane is going around and then the propellers are coming, you know, that, that just makes it more interesting. Yeah, reference there. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> Although in that case, I think that the GM intrusion happened so, to the NPC. That's one of the things I really liked about it is the fact that you could take what would normally feel like that classical encounter where it's just like, okay, so we're just going to, we're just going to beat up this berserker, you know, talking the strange here. Um, or that Berserker enacts its GM intrusion, comes rampaging through, like, a, a sheet metal wall, catches a player by surprise, and just starts beating him into the dirt. So it, it definitely adds to that shock factor, especially in combat situations. So it doesn't always feel like the... Uh, the... It also things that I think in other games would feel too much like Fiat and be too difficult for people to accept, but it's because the players have to say in it. So I, we were playing a, a, a company game, which we do about once or twice a month uh, via Skype because we're spread out all over the country. And uh, Tammy was running it. And uh, we'd had a run. I, I, my character had been given a bobble that was important. I needed it later on. And we'd had a run in with some beggar. And then my, then, then Tammy said, um, you know what? You go looking in your bag and you don't have it anymore. And you realize that that beggar was lifting it off of you when, when you were talking to that beggar, she gives me two XP. Now, if, if you did that in some other game, the players would be, would riot, right? They'd be like, what? You can't just say that they took, I didn't get a chance to roll, but you know, but in this case, the GM has, has made an overture that basically says, this is how I want the story to go. If it's important to you, you can pay a small price to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and so it's, it, there's more give and take about the story between the players and the GM. It makes it so much more interesting. It's not just. It's not just a gotcha mechanic or something where people feel like they've been slighted or cheapened out of a situation. You know, they it really it adds more element to the game because unfortunately that's one of the things that I always saw in uh, you know D and D or even some other games too, where anytime an enemy was trying to surprise you, the moment the GM says roll your perception and you have nothing else going on, you're like, okay, there's something. Mm-hmm. Else. So it it's completely takes a surprise element out of it when, you know, there's all these mechanics behind, you know, a, in that case, like a pickpocket, you know, the moment that you're, you're talking to somebody and if your GM was to say, you know, roll your perception, the first thing that comes to your mind is something's up. So even if you fail that perception check, most people are just naturally inclined to start being more careful or paying more attention after that you know, small encounter to what's going on so they don't get boned. That, that's exactly right. And, 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 you know, in some ways you have to change your mindset a little bit when you, when you're GM, uh, the cypher system, because, you know, I've, I've been gaming since 1979. I, I've played a million different systems and I was the D and D brand manager for, for several, for a couple of years. And so I very, very, very deeply steeped in, you know, in D20 and, and the 3.5 year D and D, which, which I, is a game system I absolutely love and will till the day I, day I die. But you know, those are the mechanics. Those are the, that's the mindset you have to have in almost all games. Whereas in the cipher system, 
what you as a GM will do is if there's if, if you're at camp at night and there's a creature sneaking up on the player characters, instead of saying, somebody make me a perception roll, you will either say, you hear a sound and give the players the, prop, the, you know, the warning where they hear it in advance, or you will say, it's a GM intrusion and you are surprised because the creatures got closer than you expected. And again, the, the narrative control of the, of, the, of, the, of the players is there. They can, they can reject that if they want to. Again, one of my favorite aspects about running the game, especially when you start getting into some of the stuff that's, you know, not so much your classic dungeon crawl, but, you know, more, I'm much more like a horror Cthulhu kind of guy. So anytime that I could really add that true creepiness to it, I, I think it helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. And we have, um, so there's another aspect of GM intrusions that, uh, that they also happen on a natural one and then the GM doesn't have to, to pay for it. Um, and so we have like, you know, one of the things the Cypher System rulebook did when it took the rules that already existed for Numenera and the Strange is we looked at different genres or the creative team looked at different genres and how you could reflect that, you know, the, the tropes of that or the, the mechanisms of, the, of those genres through the game system. And so in horror gaming, for example, there's a mechanism uh, by which essentially as, as the tension escalates, those GM intrusions can happen on numbers other than a one. So it starts off with a normal situation, a GM intrusion occurs on a one, and then as the tension escalates, maybe it happens on a one or a two, or a one or a two or a three. And you know, that's just one example of how you can, you can tailor it to, to, to those different narrative, narrative structures. So we, we've kind of covered a good basis of what the Cypher system is about. Um, you know, it, we kind of vagued out the mechanics a little bit, but that's okay. So tell us a little bit about the Kickstarter that's going on right now. You've decided to just go ballsy with it and release three different campaign settings for the Cypher system. That's right. Yeah. Cause we, you know, we, uh, we came out with the cypher system rule book in July of last year, if I remember correctly. And of course it had been completely done and gone to press for a couple months before that. And of course, then we were playing our own games even months before that. So we had been playing the cypher system outside of Numenera and the strange for, you know, a year or 18 months at this stage. And we've done lots of things with it individually. I, I personally run a, um, uh, currently, I'm running a science, hard science fiction survival game that kind of is like a science fiction ver- or space opera version of Lost. Um, the you know I know Monty's run um, um, dungeon crawls, horror. Uh, we've we've played um, other you know space opera. We've played um, superheroes. I mean, just all kinds of things. And so as as we've played over these many months, we've you know, people have begun launching campaigns and whatnot. And we began thinking about some of the settings that we liked um, or that the creative team liked. And like I said, we kind of come around to the conclusion that the cipher system deserved more support than we had originally, I don't want to say originally planned, but sort of originally failed to plan to give it. And that, you know, it was really deserving of a lot more. So we, we took a, f- a couple of our um, favorite campaign ideas and decided to run with them. And originally, I'll, I'll let you know on a little secret, originally it was going to be two. Um, we brought Dennis Detweiler on as our managing editor just a couple months ago. And of course, Dennis of uh, Delta Green and Godlike fame uh, knows a thing or two about uh, psychological horror and superheroes and said, you know what? I've got a campaign setting I'm really interested in, in, in building out as well. So we added that to it as, as well. And so now we have the three campaign settings that are the core of the offering 
Um, there's actually several other print products that have been funded through stretch goals. So there's more to the campaign at this stage. Um, but yeah, there's three campaign settings. Um, Gods of the Fall, um, the lead designer of whom is, is of which is Bruce Cordell. And it is a sort of a classical fantasy setting, uh, um, or at least in, in many ways, it's, it's similar to, to what you see in a lot of, um, sort of medieval fantasy. It's got its own spin. But what makes it really unique is that it, it is true epic, uh, role playing. So it goes, it goes all into the divine. Um, this is a, it's a, it's a world where, uh, some sort of cataclysm happened, uh, about a generation or so ago, maybe a hundred years ago. Um, the heavens actually literally physically crashed to earth and all of the gods in the pantheon were destroyed. They're all dead. And so this, this world has been living for, uh, you know, decades, literally without any gods. And there's a, uh, uh, a moon called the moon of Nod that has, has appeared and is on a very low orbit and it, and it eclipses one part of the world. So there's a part of the world that is forever in shadow um, and all kinds of these other sort of weird things that have happened to this world. And, uh, but what's, and, and there are also other forces that have kind of moved in, in the vacuum demons and, and wizards and charlatans and other people that have sort of tried to jockey for power in this world. Um, but there are also now after, after all these decades, some people are showing that they have some element of a, of a divine spark, that they have some, some element of divinity within them. And that if these people were to fulfill certain design labor, uh, d- uh, divine labors, um, you know, sort of follow the paths of prophecy or what have, or have you, they might form the, the, the new pantheon. And among those people, uh, hopefully forces for good, but you never know, are, are the player characters. So the player characters have this spark. They are literally people on their way to godhood. If they if they can awesome. you know if they can make their way there successfully, it definitely. So with this campaign setting, it it kind of starts off as kind of a if you want to call it like a lower power level, and then by the time that they hit uh, you know their higher ranks, at that point they should almost be gods themselves. So am I am I correct on that? They will be by the time they finish through through their character progression. They'll be honest to God, full-fledged gods by the time they get by the time they get done. Uh, Cipher system characters tend to be fairly solid. We're not talking about like you know um, first-level characters that are go out, going to go out and uh, run into the danger of being killed by a cobalt. They tend to be fairly solid characters to start with. But yes, then they then progress sort of a normal character all because, uh, the way up. That was infinity. one of the things I was kind of wondering about. Is yeah, I, I've definitely noticed it myself that you're, you're starting level characters in the cipher system. They're they're not slouches. They're not going out there beating up rats to make belts or anything of you know silly like that. So, um, you know they can handle their own in a in a fight against you know people of equal skill level. It's when they start trying to step above their pay grade that things start going worse. So I was just uh, kind of wondering like how how is that handled as far as uh, the game goes when it comes time to them reaching godhood? Like it would a character from gods of the fall at its uh maximum progression be you know considered more powerful than a character from numenera or the strange or are they still kind of on the same level yeah no i think that they that they are they are exceeding that because you have um you have mechanics it's very similar to superhero mechanics that that are presented in the csr the cyber system rulebook um that that actually shift difficulty so you're able to actually work on a, a couple steps further up the scale 
in terms of, of dealing with task difficulties. So yeah, you you are we're not simply taking sixth tier challenges and reskinning them as as godlike challenges. You're actually dealing with higher you know things that that would make uh, sort of standard characters pale even at uh, even at higher levels. Wondering about myself when I was higher tier. The info online. Um, you know, obviously it's not stated anywhere, but uh, it definitely helps to clarify on that, at least for my own sake. Uh, so what else is unique about that setting? Sure. Oh, um, you know, you, you, uh, you actually claim a dominion. So like when I say that you might ascend to Godhood, it's, it's not, uh, it's not sort of abstract. You actually, you're going to, you're going to stake a claim in the pantheon to be, I'm going to be the God of the sun, or I'm going to be the God of vengeance, or I'm going to be the God of agriculture or of sweet music or whatever it is that, that you want to do, but you're going to, you're going to stake that claim. And then your the prophecies that affect you and the, the divine labors that you're going to be responsible for, uh, uh, for that are going to unlock these divine abilities okay. are going to be so, sort of affected by those choices. So the, the, in a way, there's almost a path that's set for the characters to travel on in, in their own respective ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to make that sound, uh, too settled and 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 to be honest, to be perfectly fair, I haven't actually played a Gods of the Fall character yet. I I only know what uh, you know what what Bruce has been telling us all about it, uh, you know, and what I've seen from the materials and whatnot. Um, but yeah, and and of course, you know, I should just say the I should say those two words, Bruce Cordell. I mean, Bruce is legendary for his creativity, particularly uh, a bit on the dark side, um, and uh, you know, he brings all of that to bear on the setting. Cool. So, what is the what is the next campaign yeah. setting that you guys had on there? Uh, so we've got two others, Predation and Unmasked. Uh, Predation is, uh, uh, I'm really excited. I love Predation. It, it is, the imagery for this campaign is fantastic. The concept is great. Predation is a science fiction setting in the, in the Cretaceous period of Earth. So um, uh, a group of, uh, you know, a, a, a large group of, of people um, have time traveled to the Cretaceous from sometime in the not too distant future from here. So it's a, you know, these are people that are from our future. Um, and so they have some technologies that we don't currently have and they have tra- time traveled back to the Cretaceous period. And then something has happened and nobody can get back. And so you have uh, people uh, trapped in this and it's been, a, you know, a generation there so that there are uh, most of the, like the player characters are going to be natives to this era. Their, their, their parents and their grandparents came back from the future are, but but there's a society of people that that live here uh, now in the Cretaceous period, and uh, you know there's some technology, there's weapons, there's bioengineering. Um, the the people that have lived here from the day that they that they first came back with all of this technology when the, all the technology was shiny and new, um, did some bioengineering on the dinosaurs. There are some cybernetics. There's all kinds of this cool stuff going on. And yet you have a society that is in, in some ways, I don't know, almost post-apocalyptic, right? Because they can't make all this stuff again or, or much of it again from scratch. And, and the society is sort of trapped here and nobody knows for sure whether this is affecting the future. You know, there's the, what they call the butterfly society, which are is a reference to the, the sound of thunder by Bradbury, where their slogan is, we are all the butterfly. You know, our, our, our mere existence is messing up the future and destroying our own, the possibility of our own existence, perhaps. Um, and, 
you know, you've got some people that want to stay there, some people that want to, to find the way back. Some people control more of the technology and stuff from the modern day than others. Um, and then, of course, everybody knows that at some point um, in a finite number of years, perhaps hopefully not five years from now, but at some point in the not too distant future, there's an asteroid headed toward Earth with Earth's name on it. And it's going to wipe out the vast majority of, of life on Earth. So, you know, what are we going to do about that? So it's it's, uh, it's I think it's a really really neat and evocative setting. The Lost meets Turok Dinosaur Hunter. You know, there are elements of, of all of that in there, but you have to give it a, a sort of a high tech twist. Uh, it makes me think of uh, there was a series. It only had like one series, one season, but uh, I think it was Terra Nova, and they you know <laughs> Earth, Earth's used, resources got used up, and they went. Back in time. Yeah. Technically, they said they found, like, an alternate universe Earth. So, you know, that was how they got around the butterfly trope. Right, right. And that's, I think, that's one of the things that makes Predation interesting. Um, and again, Predation is not fully written. So there are going to be tweaks to how all of this, um, how all this works. But, um, but uh, you know, as, as I understand it in Predation, um, which is, incidentally, Shauna Germain, she, and she's a fantastic writer. Um, the uh, uh, I think the people there don't don't fully know. Are we are we truly in Earth's past as we know it? Are we actually in Earth's history? And if so, how badly are, are we messing it up? Um, or are we someplace else? And I think that there's some some division of opinions in, in that. And that's some of the conflict that underlies the the, the yeah, player's story. That one definitely excites me. That's awesome. So. You you were kind of hinting at the fact with that one that there, you so it was a, a quite a large settlement that came through in predation and settled in the crustaceous. Wow, I can't talk tonight. Settled in the time of the dinosaurs, and uh, so it's it's not just like a small camp. It, it was like a good sizable group of people. Okay, cool. Yes. Yes, yeah, so no. Um, I, I don't know exactly what China has. It's, it's hundreds or thousands. You know, it's enough that there are different factions. There are different. Um, you know, SATI is the corporation that was actually SATI, uh, Space and Time Incorporated. I think is what it was called, um, and that's the organization that brought people back. And the people that are still aligned with SATI have access to the caches of weapons okay, so and technology, but other people don't, and so on. Is uh, you know, how many? There's plans for factions, for multiple factions. Okay. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah, you've got the butterfly uh, folk and, and Sadie and others. But I don't, you know, I don't want to paint this too much as a, uh, like an L5R type setting where people identify with a specific faction. I'm just saying that there's, there's, it's not purely a survival game about surviving in this, in this harsh environment. There are also uh, conflicts that arise from the human society. So what is the final setting? So we've covered yeah. dinosaurs, we've covered gods, and uh, the final setting, if I remember, um, was kind of Cthulhu meets superheroes. Yeah, yeah right. It is a dark superhero or a superhero horror setting, if, uh, if that uh, makes any sense. Um, but it does when you hear about it. It's, it's called Unmasked, and it's uh, uh, the lead designer on this one is Dennis Detweiler, who is known both for uh, his his great work in the horror genre and his and his great work in the superhero genre. So it's a fantastic 
way to bring these together. And um, this is a set in our world, but they're uh, an emergent. Um, uh, well, I think it, it, I think it's actually sort of treated as a, as a mental illness, if you will, this emergent um, disorder that has shown up in, in, in a small number of teenagers, usually people from uh, a difficult backgrounds. And uh, these, these characters, these people have found that they can craft masks for themselves. And, you know, the mask might be something extremely traditional or it might be something very, very unusual, but it's something that covers the face. And uh, originally the sort of the mental health diagnosis was that this was something in which they were, these kids were um, imbuing part of themselves or, or sort of, you know, using it to reflect their wishes or whatnot. But in fact, the masks give them, give them power and, and, you know, superhuman power. Um, however, the masks also pay a price. There, there's a, there's a psychic toll for, for donning the mask. Um, and the masks also, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, sort of this other realm that the masks power, seem to draw their power from that's in some ways sort of um, uh, um, utopia-like. I, that's maybe not quite the right term, but there's a yearning to kind of get to the space. Um, there's the sense that the kids, the, the, the characters can, um, uh, reality becomes a little bit malleable or they, can, they have the ability to access other elements of reality when they're uh, you know when they're using their mask and so this whole idea is, is you know what what are you going to do with this power there are some that are taking it and doing bad things is that what you're going to do and and you know what does it do to you and how much are you willing to draw upon it and 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 possibly damage yourself or uh, uh, as you do so so it's it's got a psychological horror side to it um okay, and but it's a you know essentially a superhero it definitely uh, game has a little bit more of a I don't want to call it a mature concept but it's definitely a little bit more cerebral it's not just a matter of I put on my mask, I go out there and beat stuff up. Okay, cool. Right, this is not four color comics here. Cut out a little bit. Oh. Uh, no, no. Um, I was just listening. I, I knew I you wanted to get to the Cthulhu so, um, part, so. <laughs> realm. Um, just. Again, I'm kind of firing from the hip here because the game's not out yet, but just based upon what I've seen on the Kickstarter page, it looks like you guys very much have like that supernatural horror side to it as well. So you said there's ramifications to donning the masks. They seem to tap into this other world. Um, I guess, how does this other world affect the game as the players are playing? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I almost don't want to go too far into that because I'm not sure I can answer it accurately and I don't want to speak out of turn. Um, because this is probably the book that's furthest away from completion. And so, uh, the, la the less, it's the furthest out and the least amount of work has been done on it. Um, however, suffice it to say that the masks seem to have an affinity or, or perhaps or originate from, uh, Magonia, which is the, the, this other realm and, the masks oh, wow. themselves the masks perhaps themselves have their own motives. Or may not be sentient. Uh, yeah, or may or may not, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, I'm, Again, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but you think about the One Ring, right? It has its own thing that it wants to have happen, and the masks are kind of the same way. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> awesome to play the hell out of that game. That see stuff like that's right up my alley. I, I definitely like something that is a little bit more than 
I don't want to call it like generic dungeon rating, but you know, something to where I, I feel like I can get a little bit more out of it than just here's my cool superhero character. Watch me do these amazing things while I fly around the city. Cause uh, I played a couple four four color games and uh they just weren't my they just weren't my cup of tea. Just right. you know, they, I always felt like it was just the same thing, like here's bad guy, beat up his minions, beat him up, rinse repeat. So you'd much rather be right. the teenage kid that puts on a mask and goes never said I was, everybody hates never said me, but this other evil. place is perfect. <laughs> Yeah, you know, <laughs> at least with that, you can create a little bit more of a compelling story than, you know, <laughs> again, why is this villain attacking the city? Every time he shows up, we beat the hell out of him, we put him in jail, and he keeps coming back. Like, you'd think he'd learned his lesson. So, you know, it... Have you guys um, read uh, Brandon oh. Sanderson's um, Reclaimers series at all? I'm not no. So so it's three books and then a couple short stories in there, and and basically what it says is that uh, or you know how the story goes is, um, one day this red star shows up and everyone ends up naming it calamity, and what happens is certain people just throughout the world all of a sudden have superpowers, and so you know everyone seems to be, you know. Or, you know, people seem to be turning into superheroes. Well, as the story progresses, the superheroes turn out to be, um, well, evil bastards. And <laughs> they they take control and over and they have all these different abilities. And not to give the books away too much, but there there are, you know, people fighting against them and some of them have powers. Yeah, so I think the the I haven't read these books either, although the the description is familiar to me. But I think that the the similarity there is that this is an emergent thing, right? This is not, you know, I, I've got this superpower and somebody else has a superpower over there, and we're going to duke it out. It's it's you know these none of this stuff existed a couple of years ago, and now people are emerging with these powers, and some of them are doing the right things with them, and some of them are doing the wrong things with them. And where are you on that scale? So you're you're not going to be fighting a classic four color supervillain. You're going to be fighting somebody like you who has reacted differently to right. to what's going on in the world and what's going on in, in their life. And, and perhaps poorly, poorly to that. Yeah, it also makes me think of uh, the Smallville series when, you know, people would show up with these abilities and and sometimes they would, you know, go off kilter for some reason. Of, uh, J. Michael Starson, mm-hmm. uh, what was it called? Rising Stars, I believe it was called. It was a comic book series back in, I want to say it was either late 90s, early 2000s, where a satellite crashed into the planet. And uh, the people, pretty much all of the, the children that were born in this small town where the satellite crashed ended up having superpowers of some sort. And they actually started finding out that, like, once they started killing each other, their powers would grow. So there were certain people that were... Uh, Certain people that were, uh, you know, not too keen on killing other super-powered people, and then there were some that were like, hey, you know what? I want my strength to be even more than what it is now. So it was, uh... 
There you go. Highlander thing going on there. Oh, yeah, definitely. So it, it very much had like, like a Highlander you know, thing almost. A mature elements to it because, again, it was, it was normal people that just suddenly discovered that they had these weird abilities and these weird powers. So, it, and again, it was like anybody else, you know, a husband and wife from the town might be married, have, you know, totally different powers. And, you know, so a, a uh, normal screaming match or argument in that house might be destructive to the city block, depending upon who had what for powers. You know, but for them, it was normal. <laughs> um, oh, what was... Oh, Hancock. The, the movie Hancock. With uh, Will Smith and yeah, Charlie right. Theron, very much like that, and um, th- and their and arguments thrown through a wall with a fridge. Cool. So, tell us a little bit more about the Kickstarter campaign. Like, you guys have been <laughs> nice. blowing it out of the water. Uh, what was your initial goal? Um. Thank. Well, first of all, thanks. That's very kind of you to say. We had an initial goal of thirty thousand uh, dollars. Um, we are currently, as of this moment, closing out on the two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars stretch goal as as we speak right now. Um, and you know, as we always do, we we start core of what we want to accomplish with the stretch with the Kickstarter. But it's never everything we want to do, right? What we really want to do is make the we, we start off with we want to make the books as you would buy them in a store as the sort of the basic high quality, really nice, but, but, but fairly conservative in terms of, you know, what you're getting. And then we want to use the Kickstarter to not just make that happen, but then also turn that into the product that we want, that we would really like to do. So for example, we have funded uh, poster maps for all of these books. And um, uh, if we hit this, this goal, the second one of them will now be a double sided poster map. Um, We have funded um, uh, PDF, that give you conversion guides to use all of this content in your Numenera or Strange campaigns. Um, we have funded uh, a whole new book, the um, uh, Ex- Expanded Worlds, uh, which is uh, builds on what is in the Cipher System rulebook. So it, it doesn't tie to these three campaign settings we've been talking about. It's more stuff for making games of your own, you know, settings of your own um, using the Cipher System. Um, and we have funded growing that book, making it bigger, adding its page count, making it hardcover. Um, we've got a couple of decks. Uh, one of the things that we we love at MCG is not vivid worlds and really great elegance to get out of your way. We also love to think about how do we make it a game easy to run? And we talked before about how, how you know, it makes it easy on the GM, but we're also thinking about like, would you rather, if you need to randomly come up with something or you need a piece of inspiration would you rather break up in a book find page 237 pull out your percentile dice roll the dice look down a table um, either in prep or at the game table that takes time what if you had a deck of cards you could just pull a card and it gives you the answer so we we've uh, funded uh, uh two decks um that that uh uh help the game run smoothly actually one of them also adds a, a whole new mechanic which is kind of neat um, so a whole bunch of stuff, and all of this is in the core package, so that if you're supporting at that core package level that was originally the three sort of more conservative version of the books, um, you are getting all of this stuff now as part of, as part of your package. So, it, you know, what started off as, we hope, a, a very reasonable good deal has turned into a, a fantastic deal. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to cast this wrong. On the one hand, we never make assumptions and we've had, we've been lucky enough uh, or fortunate enough to have some really successful Kickstarter campaigns, but we never sit down and say, all right, this time we're going to make a hundred, you know, $500,000. We start off focused on what the core is with no expectations that it's going to go higher. But we also think higher. We also think, you know, what would we really like to do? You know, if, if we can make this campaign work and roll and, and let us hit other stretch goals, how, you know, what would, what would it look like if the pie, you know, pie in the sky version, what, how cool can we make this ultimately? And so that's, you know, we, we have that in the back of our minds. We sort of pencil in our ideas and, um, you know, it's so, so it's by design that we get to what we think is an end product often that so is, is this, got some, some really, uh, really cool features. Have kind of planned before the Kickstarter started. Cause I know a lot of people out there, they seem to think that, uh, Kickstarters themselves, yeah. playing devil's like, devil's advocate here, a lot of people will start to look at Kickstarters as a pre-order system, which is not the case at all, and it was never meant to be. So, uh, when when you guys set out on this kind of stuff, um, about how far out do you normally exactly. plan on your stretch goals? You know, we so plan is. Well, I don't know. Plan, I guess, is the right word. It we pencil in, you know, we'll pencil in twenty stretch goals or fifteen stretch goals or you know a fair number. I, I would say that we haven't hit, like, that we have not hit a point in this campaign where we've said, "Well, gosh, I wonder what we're going to do next," and we scratch our head. We've always got, frankly, more ideas than we're likely to be able to make happen. Um, now, how concrete are those ideas? You know, some of them were, you know, some of them like we did double-sided poster maps with the Into the Night campaign last summer. So when we were doing this campaign, we were like, well, those Into the Night, the, you know, the Into the Night, Into the Night poster map that came out of the first book of that series was really, really nice. And the one that we're doing for Into the Deep, which just went to press, is really, really nice. So that seems like a no-brainer for this campaign. We think it would be a, a really great addition to, to the books. Um, but there might be other things where we just have like a vague idea, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we did this thing? And then as the campaign goes and we see that that's more likely to possibly become a reality, then we begin to think more about it. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I, I, maybe I sound like I'm hedging here. I'm not trying to hedge, but the, the point is we try to look forward while at the same time, never like assuming we're going to get to something. Does that make any sense? You know, that, that right there kind of, uh, you know, again, I'm oh, yeah, devil's definitely. It definitely yeah. kind of leads back around to, you know the fact there's certain companies out there that they they look at a they they look at a Kickstarter and they go we know that we're gonna hit you know a million bucks you know I'm just throwing a number out there so let's go ahead and just plan out for that million bucks even though we say we only need you know twenty thousand dollars we know we're gonna hit a million so let's just go ahead and plan it all out now and it, a lot of those campaigns especially in the the retail market not to talk too much business for the listeners out there but that starts to come off as like a company that is strictly going for a cash grab and they don't give two shits about the local retailer right right well you know i mean i can't really speak for anybody else's situation and so i'm i'm, I'm gonna refrain from doing that but you know Everybody's got a different situation. So look at uh, Dwarven Forge, for example, whose Kickstarter ends tonight. Um, and I love their stuff. I've supported all their Kickstarters. Um, and I've bought, owned their stuff before they were Kickstarting. Um, I just, I, I really, really love it. 
And my guess is that they would probably fit the mold that you're saying, uh, describing that they, but you know, they've got to do that, right? They've, they've got to, they've got to plan those products out in advance because it's not like they can be halfway through a three week campaign and suddenly decide to, to model a whole bunch of new things. Um, they've got to be prepared for it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, from a business perspective, I'm sympathetic to their position relative to what you're saying and that their stuff is hard to retail and it's hard to make successful in retail. And so in a way, Kickstarter is great for them as it is for us because it's a way for us to present the product to and the idea to to the end user. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I say it's like the Apple store, right? You know, Apple languished trying to sell at Circuit City for, for decades and then they finally opened their own stores and they created an environment where they can tell the story that they, that they, the way they want to. They don't have to rely on some salesman who doesn't really know much about it to try and, you know, maybe tell the story. They can, they can be the ones who can say, okay, customer, I have your attention. Now I'm going to tell you why this is really cool and I get to do it. And, and in that environment, the, the, the customer mm-hmm. listens. And so, you know, Kickstarter is like that, right? You can, you can present what you're going to do in a way that's not like any other marketing environment, including retail stores, because you get to get the, the focused attention of, of the customer and you get to tell them, this is why this is really cool in a way that you can't do through a display ad and you can't do through PR and you can't do through, through retail. Um, and it, you know, it, it's great and it has a, a wide ranging effect. And, and again, I can't speak for anybody else, but for us, a book that we launched through Kickstarter will outsell in retail, a book that we didn't do in Kickstarter. So, you know, people worry or people think maybe that we're stealing the customers away. And we've had retailers sometimes say this, you know, well, you're stealing my customers. Why would I carry your stuff? But, but if we do product X and we just release it entirely the conventional way, it will sell a certain amount. And if we do product Y and it's gone through the Kickstarter process and we've sold 2000 copies of it already on Kickstarter, it will sell more copies in retail. Because we've had that chance to put it out there yeah, in front of the, the gaming community and really tell the story well. What you do. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, go back to the point that you made earlier that about treating Kickstarter as a, as a pre-order system or as just sort of a store. Um, and, you know, I, I won't lie, the ability to fund stuff up front removes risk for us and gives us liquidity and makes us be able to do things. And, and so, you know, we like that aspect of it for sure. And it's super important to our business model. But the, the thing that makes it great is that we can do things, we can take risks on things that you couldn't, ri- you couldn't take those risks in regular retail channels. You know, you, sort of like I was saying, we start with a book and we say, well, this is going to be a whatever, 160 page hardcover. And it's going to be nice and it's going to have great writing and great content and great art, but that's all it's going to be, right? But when we take it through the Kickstarter process, then we can say, well, what else can we add to it? You know, can we give it a poster map? Can we give it some PDF support? Can we make it bigger? Can we make it add more art to it? Can we do all the sorts of things that we want to do to make it the dream version of that book? We wouldn't be able to take those chances if it's only going into the retail channel. Um, But when the backers are supporting us, they are basically telling us directly, yes, we like that. And to show you, we're going to give you our money. Um, and they are giving us the liquidity to do, to do all that. You know, we can make things happen. And so it very much is a creation process. And even for companies like ourselves that, that have done several Kickstarters and we seem probably, I mean, I hope we seem like we know what we're doing and we're doing it very well. Um, we're not, we're not, you know, newbie that's sort of feeling their way through and, and 
um, you know, bringing something brand, you know, we're not brand new to market. We're sort of a mid-sized company, if you will. Um, nonetheless, we depend on the way Kickstarter connects us with the community. It lets all the people we talk to in our comments and on the messages and in social media and whatnot, it lets them tell us what they want and we can make the products, you know, we can form the products in that direction. Um, it, it's just, it's just fantastic from a creation perspective. And so every backer should look at it as contributing to the creation, not placing a pre-order. Um, and, and, you know, but then when it does really well and we have a lot of upside and we are hitting stretch goals and whatnot, we then have the ability to share that upside back with the backers by adding value to their, to their, to their package. So it does become a really good deal. You know, people, uh, people start to wonder, it's like, well, if I'm kind of helping you fund this up front, you know, am I going to get a little extra? And again, there's balance in that too. We don't have to go into all the details on it, but there's definitely a balance in that. You don't ever want people to feel like if they didn't get it through Kickstarter, they got an incomplete set. You don't ever want anybody, anybody to feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great, great point. So we do Kickstarter exclusives. Uh, the poster maps will be exclusive just to the Kickstarter version of this book. It won't be in the retail version. Um, we never want those exclusives to be, we want them to be appealing. We want them to be a nice reward for the people that, that essentially collaborate with us by helping us bring this to fruition. We also don't want anybody who, who buys that book in a store to feel like they're buying a second rate book. We've talked about all three of the campaign systems that will be coming out in the Cypher System Kickstarter, which, uh, when does that end, by the way? Uh, the Kickstarter actually ends on Friday, the 1st of April. No fooling. Um, it, uh, it ends in the evening of Friday. I believe it's 7 p.m. Eastern time. Maybe it's, maybe it's 8. It's 8. Um, you know what? I, I should probably give you an accurate answer on that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to through to our website right here. I, I'm looking uh, at it right Kickstarter. now. It's 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Eastern time? Yep. Yeah, okay, cool. I just, yeah, right. Okay, good. Yep. And so, uh, that yeah, right. So by the time people are listening to this, they're probably, you know, within 36 hours of the of the end, end point. So uh, I encourage people to, you know, to get on board. We've had, uh, we've been able to do some really cool things with the products. And like I said, we've actually added products to the rewards. So people who came in funding for three books in a deck are now getting four books and two decks plus a ton of extras. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been fantastic getting the support from the community any of the and uh, being able to make these books into what they're, what they're going to be. Very, very biased on this. They're very, very sexy. Like the artwork is top notch. The the page quality is top notch. Um, I pretty much beat up my original copy of Numenera, and uh, it has not fallen apart yet. The spine's still fine. So high, very very high quality books. It's a full page book too. So for for it to hold together, yes, um, you know, under under duress, I I'd, I'd like to think right. that that's well, that's that's, do that's pretty good. I could keep going for more and more and more, but uh, yeah, I know when I got to stop babbling. So, Charles, it was great having you on, man. Excellent, Nick. Is there anything else you want to say? Final thoughts before we head out? No, I I've been reading the the system. I've been trying to get my gaming group to play, and I keep trying to push them to the kit, Kickstarter. So, excellent, excellent. I like the system, so and can't wait to see everything else that comes out. Definitely jumping and back it. I can personally attest that the people over at Monty Cook Games, they're all great people. 
and all they want to do is just show you everything that they've got to offer in their products. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Talk to you later, Charles. Thanks so much for having me. It was, it was great.